This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast today on the pod. No time to wait, even though the provincial government hasn't made a decision on policing in Surrey. The city moves ahead with a new working group on public safety involving the RCMP. Plus, the port strike hits day six with no talks planned, with $3.7 billion of cargo already disrupted. Is it time for the federal government to recall parliament and bring down the hammer and impose back-to-work legislation? Plus, the Netherlands is the latest country to ban cell phones in classrooms. Should BC do the same? That's all next on the Jazz Juhal Show podcast. Yesterday on the show, we talked about Monocle magazine from London. Uh, They put out their yearly quality of life index for their global uh, readers. And in it, they highlight some of the top uh, cities when it comes to livability. Think uh, transportation networks, education, museums, galleries, crime rates, uh, unique policies in municipalities, how much uh, the percentage of commuters who cycle to work, plus many other metrics. Now, the cities on the list were all... European and Asian. Think Vienna, Copenhagen, Munich, Singapore, uh, Tokyo. What was missing? Well, North American cities. Uh, That includes cities like Vancouver and Toronto, Seattle, New York, San Francisco. Those would, in many cases, be on that very list, but they weren't. And what was the reason? Well, rampant crime and public safety issues. Those are issues number one for many of those cities. Vancouver wasn't on the list, Toronto, San Francisco, New York, nothing. No city from North America. Now, yesterday we spoke to Seattle journalist Gregory Scruggs, who wrote an essay in the magazine saying even in in so-called progressive cities, we need to get real about dealing with crime and safety. Take a listen. I think the the situation here is similar uh, if sadly slightly more severe than Vancouver and, and where the, despite our similarities, I think where the the border comes into play is the availability of guns in the United States uh, quite more readily available than in Canada. And, and certainly our rates of gun crime uh, have been alarmingly high over the last couple of years, seem to be leveling off, but nevertheless at, at higher rates, I think, than anybody would like, especially after a historic you know, two or so decade run of of low crime rates uh, throughout the United States. The sudden return to an era approximating the early 90s has been a real shock to the system. That is journalist Gregory Scruggs talking about some of the challenges that they're seeing in Seattle, but also many other cities along the West Coast, Vancouver, uh, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles. It's an ongoing issue for cities uh, in North America. Well, today uh, in the city of Surrey, uh, the mayor announced a mayor's working group on public safety. Joining me now to talk about the issue is the mayor of Surrey, Brenda Locke. Brenda, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. So why the need in Surrey to move forward with this working group, number one, and and how would it work? Well, I think there's really two reasons. One is uh, to to do a better job and and make sure that we're touching all those uh, touch points we need to in terms of how do we make our city safer. And And I wanted to say right off the bat, Every single city is unique. We have unique demographic. We have unique uh, ability to uh, have infrastructure that meets the needs of of families and youth and and children. 
And so every city has to be looked at on their own merit. Um, Certainly we think Surrey is a safe city, but we can always do better. We must do better. Uh, So the purpose of the working group is really to bring people together. Uh, It's going to be a collaborative group that's going to have the RCMP uh, helping them get up to full strength and keeping that and monitorizing that. Um, But it's also going to be about how do we deal with issues with bylaws? How do we um, up our game when it comes to our fire service? And also then all of the other pieces, our NGOs, our non-government agencies, and all the good work that they do in our cities. And how do we better support them to do a better job in our city? Now, the RCMP will be working with these other groups as well? They they are, they have, they always have. So we have a myriad of of, uh, civic groups that are working together with the RCMP, um, whether it's on uh, the wraparound program uh, in the schools, whether it's with our SAFE program with the police mental health outreach team, uh, our anti-gang, our uh, anti-gang family empowerment program, it's called SAFE. It's a it's a cooperative group between the federal government, uh, the provincial government, and uh, the city of Surrey, um, and certainly, of course, uh, the RCMP are cornerstone of that. But there's lots of uh, different groups, and how do we pull everybody together so they're all working towards the goal? What's what's it been like in Surrey in regards to dealing with issues of public safety? Uh, no, no city is uh, is is isolated from what I was talking about earlier. You saw it in Vancouver. You're seeing it in Portland, Seattle. Um, what kind of unique challenges are you seeing in the sort of post-COVID or COVID environment in Surrey? You know, um, post-COVID has been an interesting time, and I've talked to lots of mayors and councillors throughout the region, and we're we're all kind of all kind of going. What happened? Uh, people have have changed, and maybe it is because they were isolated for a time. They're they're um, more uh, more angry, it seems. But I think that it's really about building community and building places where community to, can get together, and we've really seen it. Surrey is a big festival city. Uh, In two weeks, actually, we're having our Fusion Festival. We just finished Canada Day. Making people feel a part of their community and engaged in their community, I think, is is massively helpful. And also making them know where they can reach out to. And that's something that we could do a better job, quite frankly, in Surrey. Uh, One of the things I want to work towards is having a welcome center for for newcomers so that they know there's a one-stop shop for them for resources. It's really engaging people, whether it's with our library services or whether it's with our our sports and rec programs. It's really about uh, getting people where they are, where they live and play and and helping them work through the challenges of, of everyday life. Uh, now, uh, obviously, as you say, you're trying to bring all these touch points within the city to work together, to communicate with each other. Uh, but it, you're in the midst of, as you know very well, a, a policing challenge and, and deciding whether or not you, the community wants, is going to move ahead with RCMP or the Surrey Police Service. You certainly l- let everybody know where you stand and the council stands, the majority of council stands. Uh, but at the same time, the provincial government has a say in all of this. Wouldn't it have been better just to wait, let the decision from the provincial government come in in regards to Surrey Police Service or RCMP and then launch this uh, mayor's working group on public safety rather than move ahead now? It seems kind of, you know, one would argue you're moving a little too fast here. Why not wait till Victoria comes down with a decision, which should be only a few weeks away? 
Well, you know, I, I did reach out to the Premier on this very issue, and he, he said that uh, the province was interested in the program and would be supportive of it. So we're moving ahead because we must. Uh, we've waited already a long time, and I don't want to get into all that, but the city has made a decision, and we're going to move forward with uh, with our plan. We uh, want to make sure that our city is uh safe and progressive city and and certainly Surrey is a very very progressive city and it's a young city and we don't uh, have time to wait we're seven months into this now Mm -hmm. and we've made our decision and and that's that's why we're doing this um would you would you you invite sps though to would you invite sps to this uh, working group i mean if it is just working and collaborating does it hurt to have sps there with rcmp as part of this broad surrey working group and whatever the decision may be at least both police entities are there so it doesn't hamper your ability to move forward and be effective whatever the decision may be no it does it, it this is not um this is not a political group this is really about po- public safety for the city of surrey so would sps members be inv- invited to the table absolutely uh, we've invited the province and and uh, as i said the uh, premier has recognized there's uh, there's um interest in it and and said that uh, he would support this moving forward so um, it's just about us getting people together and it's not just about policing jazz that's Mm -hmm. uh, um, an important piece to this it's about all the all of the people that are really collaborating in our city to provide a safer city where there are real eyes on the street where people are caring for one another because at the end of the day that's really what this is all about. It's about making sure people feel like they're a part of their community. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been given any indication when you can expect a decision from Victoria? Because I know you're very tired of waiting as our residents. Any sense of when you might get a decision from them? No, I don't have any sense. Um, I think I said to you two weeks ago, <laughs> last time we <laughs> talked, Jess. I keep repeating that. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have any definitive answer uh, I, I can only tell you, Surrey made its decision. We believe in our decision. We actually had a stronger uh, number of people voting for that decision, and so we're moving forward in that vein. Um, the the working group is, is a part of that, that's for sure. Uh, and we welcome uh, the Surrey Police Service members to come on uh, board and, and join the RCMP. And our indication is there's many of them, over 80, that are interested in joining the RCMP. So um, we're we're just moving forward because we must. Uh, we have wasted enough time. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of work to do in a city that is mobile and dynamic and young as Surrey. So we're moving forward, and, and uh, I'm hearing from residents every day that are just saying, "Let's let's go. Let's just get on with the work of the city." And and I totally agree with them. Amir Locke, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. Today's striking port workers rallied near the uh, Vancouver waterfront uh, to mark the sixth day on the picket line as they seek a new contract with the BC Maritime Employers Association. About 7,400 members of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union's A union have been off the job since Canada Day, and of course they're backing demands for improved wages and are pushing back against contracting out and automation. Now, the morning demonstration was organized by the union and billed as a solidarity rally. Uh, International Longshore and Warehouse Union President Rob Ashton spoke at that event. Take a listen. Three times the employer walked away from the table. 
three times. Once after 36 hours, we were ready to stay the whole time. The second time was after 12 hours. We were ready to stay the whole time. And once after six hours, when we put a, a proposal on the table to get the deal done and get us into monetary, because we knew that was the path forward to protect our workers' way of life, not only for our generation, but for future generations. And what did the employer do? They tucked tail and ran. Because you see, they don't want to negotiate with us. That was uh, Rob Ashton uh, from the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. He is the president there. Of course, uh, the Employers Association, which association which is uh, represents management in more than 30 BC ports, has said binding arbitration could quickly end the strike. At this point, Federal Labor Minister Seamus O'Regan uh, is urging the two sides to make use of available mediators and resume negotiations. So there's a tremendous amount of pressure uh, at this point uh, to find a solution and find it quickly because the strike has already disrupted nearly $3.7 billion worth of cargo. It's a significant amount. So where do we go from here? Can we afford to allow this port strike to go on for much longer? Joining me now to talk about the issue is Kirk LaPointe, publisher and executive editor for Business in Vancouver. Kirk, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be with you. Uh, this port strike, now many would argue that, look, it's early days still, it's only day six, uh, let both parties uh, continue to uh, uh, to negotiate this, uh, they'll figure it out. Uh, can the economy here in BC and Canada afford to wait much longer in your mind? Well, already in Alberta, they're calling this a disaster for its economy. I mean, this, this is, uh, these are ports, of course, that handle about one-seventh of all of our traded goods. Um, you can take a look at the overall impact over the course of the year. It's about $2.7 billion in national GDP. Um, there's about there's 7,400 uh, terminal cargo loaders uh, that, that are, of course, out of work. They, you know, there's income issues with them. Um, and, of course, it's just the supply chain. Um, and, you know, you've got, you've really got a lot of... Um, uh, freight that is sitting idle now or has to be diverted if it can be. Um, and so you end up with this kind of hole in your economy that, um, you know, where, where you've got dependency by the rail, you've got dependency with truckers, you've got all kinds of, uh, you know, related income and work that's, uh, that's affected by this. So, of course, the longer it goes on, the worse it gets. Um, the bigger issue, I think, overall, is whether you know we return to some sort of era where there is a, a kind of a almost a semi-permanent um, labor climate where um, some you know some entities internationally don't feel they can depend on British Columbia and on Canada, for that matter, in terms of moving moving goods uh, around and. And if that gets to that point, then we really do have a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, some have already said that, look, uh, you know, we had a similar type of conversation going on in Quebec in 2021. And, and the federal government already had uh, back-to-work legislation uh, pre-written uh, so uh, they could come down very quickly and get on with it. And here it looks like they're still waiting for both parties to sort of figure it out. There is, so far has been no call to get the uh, parliament back and a potential back-to-work legislation. So we still could be going for many days, even if the government wants these folks back to work. 
Yeah, and, and obviously uh, uh, the House of Commons uh, has to be able to pass that legislation um, if it if it chooses to do so, of course. And that's that's a very loaded issue right now with a minority parliament in which the Liberals have the support of the NDP as part of its covenant. You know, and and of course the NDP would would not be uh, in on the idea of being able to have back to work legislation. The Liberals would most likely get their support from the Conservatives of, uh, of all people. Um, I think you know. I think you're right, though, that where uh, the tone that you're hearing from Ottawa and from the Minister Seamus O'Regan, the Labour Labour Minister, is that uh, somehow uh, arbitration is the step to go. That the two sides need to look at that as the option and not look at uh, some kind of temporary fix, which would be a um, back-to-work legislation, because that simply sets you up for a labor climate that next time is going to be just as bad, if not worse. You know, it leaves a terrible taste when uh, when organi- labor unions are negotiated, uh, negotiating with you, and then uh, talks break off, you can't revive them, and you resort to that big big hammer. And, uh, you know, in as much as that big hammer has a short-term effect, gets things moving again, um, what you have to always wonder about is what kind of long-term consequence to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this World Bank report from a few months ago that basically put our port, I think, 347th uh, most efficient in regards to getting cargo in and out, 347 out of 348. Uh, you know, I was looking yeah. at footage, um, uh, was it last week, from the Long Beach port near Los Angeles, and one of the workers was showing how the automated, that portion of the port that is automated worked. And it was fascinating to watch these containers being moved around the port all through automation and some of these machines stopping for another machine as it's passing by. Uh, and I think it did cost long term, I think it was 600 jobs uh, potentially because of that automation in one portion of the port. I looked at the Rotterdam port, the busiest port in Europe, at one time the busiest port in the world, how automated it it, it is. I mean, I guess the existential challenge here as we debate, you know, salaries and pension payments and all those other benefits, the big threat looming over the heads of longshoremen over the long term still remains automation. Yeah, no, it is the existential uh crisis that faces not just longshoremen, but a variety of industries that we all, we all have, um, you know, automation is real upon us. Uh, not going to, not going to subside. Uh, we're going to be, uh, you know, eaten away at it, um, as time goes on more and more. Um, we, you know, we're probably looking in this country, most of the estimates I've seen at about 30% of our jobs are somehow, uh, going to face uh, a form of automation that could even, mean the extinction of, of a lot of uh, occupations. And uh, you, know, you can, as a, as a labor force, try to hold that back, um, slow the progress, uh, slow the, the speed with which your jobs are going to be disrupted. Um, you can see that that's a thread that obviously runs through labor negotiations all over in many of our resource-based industries as well. Um, and and I think it is in this case here uh, the backdrop of this, you know, the the specter of where the industry is going to go. You know, you very clearly have some disputes over wages. You have certainly a dispute over maintenance and the extent of uh, of those contracts and who can operate them. 
but uh, but yeah, the automation issue is is by no means going to go away, no matter how you even settle this. Yeah, and what I find interesting is you you know you can fight it at at a one port or twenty ports here in British Columbia, uh, but if the competition in and around you in North America uh, ports aren't as automated compared to Europe or especially Asia, but inevitably if the industry is already headed in that direction, to a certain degree already there in some of the major ports around the world, this will be inflicted on you whether you want it or not. The question is how, how you manage it. Yeah, you can't hold it back truly. You can um, you can slow the progress. You can uh, make other types of transitional arrangements for your workforce. Uh, but in the end, uh, you know, I mean, in our, in our business, Jazz, as you know, I mean, we've had all sorts of automation move in to take away roles um, for printers and and publications, um, along with a lot of other uh, areas of our operations. You know, we we face um, the specter of generative AI around uh, around writing, uh, some of our manuals and documentation and things that are likely getting close to the bone around our journalism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is just upon us. Um, it's more the question of how you handle it, not whether you have a choice on whether to handle it. Kirk, always a wonderful chat with you. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Jess. Good talking to you. And every day um, when I leave uh, the program at the end of the day, I head uh, over the Broad Street Bridge and uh, I can see the uh, Sinoc uh, development. It's uh, right now uh, workers are working on the first phase of that development, which is on the west side of Broad Street Bridge, which is adjacent to Vanier Park. Uh, the first phase uh, is being worked on now, and hopefully will be com- uh, completed, to my understanding, by 2025-2026. Uh, and that phase, I think, brings in about 1,500 rental homes into the Metro Vancouver um uh, market. Now there'll be a second phase, a third phase, and a fourth phase. And each one brings in about 1,500 new homes. So in, once completed uh, in and around 2032-2033, there will be a build-out of over 6,000 units, enough to uh, enough space to hire up to, or enough space for 9,000 residents in and around uh, the Broad Street Bridge. Well, today the Squamish First Nation announced that they're adopting BC residential tenancy protections for that housing project. As you know, that is on reserve land. Joining me now to talk a little bit about today's announcement is Wilson Williams, Squamish Nation spokesperson. Wilson, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. So, walk me through. Uh, you now, one people, one most people would think, look, uh, this is a housing development. They would think, well, of course, uh, the the residential tenancy issues, uh, tenancy protection would automatically be there. But just walk our audience through, just in regards to the unique nature of the Sinoc project and 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 what's transpired here. Yeah, you know, uh, Sanok, our our our, our ten point four acres there is uh, is uh, res- known as reserve lands. So it's 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 dealt differently with the provincial federal government and the city of Vancouver. So it's very unique, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of work that's been going on behind the scenes to make it, uh, you know, not only affordable but make it like, you know. Um, uh, better for everyone who wants to move there, but also, you know, protecting our residents there and, you know, it, adopting, uh, you know, uh, some of the regulations that the federal government and the provincial government used to, or Residential Tenancy Act, you know, we want to make sure, uh, you know, these are in place so people, you know, the following the same rules as uh, 
they do already, right? And it's adopted by the uh, our nation, not only on Sanok lands, but for our, our, our future developments and uh, in our reserve lands. So the Residential Tenancy Act, which you see it in applying to residential to rental units, would be apply would apply to uh, Sinoc and, and any other project on Squamish Nation land, as you say, said. Is there uh, in regards to dispute resolution? Uh, is any of it? encouraged or defined or uh, your culture itself, the Squamish Nation culture, how much a role did that play in regards to defining some of these dispute resolutions that, you know, are quite common when it comes to uh, tenancy issues? Yes, exactly. You know, this is a first a first in Canada, an Indigenous-led approach to dispute resolution, you know, and uh, we're, we want to do it in a Squamish way, you know, informed by our our Squamish culture and heritage and traditions. But at the same time, we want to make sure that, uh, you know, this has been properly adopted, but it's in Squamish-led, but also, like, uh, you know, we want to make sure people are comfortable and that there's a a formal process in regards to, like you said, dispute dispute resolution. But there's also, you know, like, we want to make sure our renters are protected in regards to allowable rent increases, uh, maintenance of properties, protection against unfair evictions, and so on and so forth. Uh, so in regards to just rental protection, just for a moment here, uh, you know, the government sets a rate usually in and around inflation. Is this the maximum you can you can increase rent by? Uh, so would would uh, a property that is built on Squamish land, so that you, you would have to abide by that as well then? Yes. So we want to make sure, you know, like, you know, we're in this housing crisis, you know, not just with the Squamish Nation, with the city of Vancouver, you know, and, and, and it bodes well throughout Canada. And we want to be, you know, not only good partners, but we want to make sure it's done right. We want to make Vancouver affordable. We're, we're, we're partnering, we're building relations, you know, whether it's the reconciliation, but we're building strong relations to meet, better meet the needs of um the city of Vancouver and its housing crisis. So we want to make sure, you know, we're not going over what is expected, but we're also, you know, still doing a lot of work behind the scenes for subsidized rental. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is, I'm just curious at, uh, in regards to the Squamish nation itself, you know, once this is done, uh, Squamish first nation will be one of BC's uh, single largest landlords of purpose built, built rental housing. Um, that's a huge responsibility. There, there is a lot that goes into that. I mean, has the has the on the corporate side, uh, has the the council itself <laughs> grasped all that? I'm sure they have grasped that. But I mean, it's a it's a big responsibility considering what you're building already on Sinoc, other lands in Squamish, and then of course other work you'll be doing on Jericho one day. It's a significant um, achievement and responsibility that comes with that. Yes, there is. I mean, you know, before. You know, I've always, you know, I always go back to my teachings before if I feel overwhelmed personally, but collectively as leadership too, we make sure we have infrastructure in place that, uh, you know, really gets in the weeds of some of this uh, very important work um, that we're moving forward, you know, and but we uphold our relationships too. But, it, but at the same time, like I said, what grounds me, but also our leadership is that we go back to our teachings and ways of life that we're incorporating into the work we're doing. And, you know, we're, we're actually educating our partners as well. But at the same time, it is a lot of work, but it's, uh, it's, it's good work that, you know, that we're, you know, meeting the needs of um, our membership, 
not only that, our, our, our residents in Vancouver, our future residents in Vancouver, where, you know, we're the most unaffordable place to stay and we want to change that narrative, but also the reality of it. So people will come to the best city and, uh, you know, a little bias for me here, but the uh, best city in the world. Um, just to, can you update us on the construction schedule and how it's going? I gave sort of a rough a, rough uh, yeah. outline when it's going to get done. There was some yeah. opposition. There remains concern by some residents in that area in regards to the size and scope of the project. But can you give us a sense of uh, how the how the first phase, which is being built right now, is going? Yeah, before that, you know, tomorrow is part of one of our big celebrations. Tomorrow is Sanok Day, and I invite all the public down there, um, right down by the Broad Street Bridge there on our, our lands. We're having a big celebration with our membership and part of the 100 years of amalgamation, um, joining the ceremony, whether people support it or not, because if they don't, they can learn a lot of history there as well and, you know, build those initial relations, whether it's... Uh, constructive or very positive but the the phase right now first phase is development is the completion will be 2027 to 28 and uh, the second phase will be 2029 and 2030 and the fourth phase will be completed at in 2032 2033 so each phase will generate roughly around 1500 homes bringing Sanok's total number of rental homes a build out of over 6,000 and it'll be enough space for up to 9,000 residents. That's a lot of people, uh, and uh, certainly we need we need the, we need the the rental for homes, the six thousand that you say. I mean, that'll have a huge impact on on rentals and availability of rentals. And the city is still growing. Uh, and, and how does your community, along with Musqueam and Slaywatooth, beyond uh, you know Sinoc and then other developments on Squamish Station land, you're also working with Musqueam and Slaywatooth uh, for Jericho. Is, are the communities collectively able to handle just the workload that comes with that? I mean, that is significant. Yes, it's very significant. Like I said, when when we feel that button of being overwhelmed, we slow down, and that's part of our teachings to not get ahead of ourselves. You know, we've been waiting for, you know, it's called our diamond in the rough with Sanok, even though we got only 10 acres of 80 back, and that fight was uh, long and hard since, uh, since they shipped us out on the barge um, in 1913 there. But um, to be able to come to this day, and, you know, I look at it as, you know, we're back in our home village. It provides comfort for our families and, you know, our ancestors as well, as well spiritually that uh, we are doing this for economic wealth and uh, building for a sustainable future of our people, uh, most importantly. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of work that's going into it. Our MST developments, it's different lands we're talking about. But with our nation's uh, reserve lands here, and uh, we want to do it in a good way and uh, encourage um, those who may be challenged by some of uh, us being visible in our own lands again uh, to come and meet with us and talk with us and, uh, you know, um, take part in some of these ceremonies that we're doing in celebrations. But at the same time, you know, it's it, it, it can start these conversations to un- uplift that uh, heaviness that people carry that uh, been living there in the area. But uh They'll, they'll, they'll learn more of that history of the land itself as well So, and uh, the families that were there because uh, we're neighbours now. Well, congratulations to you, uh, Wilson. We will chat uh, once again, I'm sure, because it's such a massive project and will have a huge impact not only on the skyline but uh, on the amount of rental properties available for residents as well. Wilson, thank you. <laughs> oh, thanks for having me today, and I really appreciate it. 
The Netherlands is the latest country to announce measures to ban devices in classrooms, specifically cell phones. Now, cell phones um, are set to be banned from classrooms to stop them from disrupting learning, according to the Dutch government. The initiative is being introduced in collaboration with schools and to take uh, and will take effect at the start of uh, next year. The ban is not legally enforceable, but it may become so. Uh, in the future. What's interesting about this is that the other tech is also banned, including tablets and smartwatches, if you can believe that. Various studies have found limiting children's screen time is linked to improving cognition and concentration. Now, the uh, announcement from the Netherlands um, also includes the fact that they'll be reviewing uh, this ban at the end of the 2024-2025 school year to see how well it has worked and whether uh, a legal ban will be needed. Now, the Netherlands announcement follows a similar decision by Finland uh, last week. Its government announced it would change the law to make it easier to restrict the use of cell phones in schools. Other countries, including England and France, have also proposed banning mobile phones to improve learning as well. Now, there's been a lot of talk here in British Columbia whether or not we should be doing the same. Now, generally, a cell phone policy is set by individual schools. And then when I was um, an MLA, it's one of the things that we had discussed, certainly in our caucus, and I was pushing for it. I was the main guy pushing for it, actually, uh, because I've seen it with young kids and even my own son. And I think many parents in regards to just dealing with cell phones and, and concentration and making sure that they interact with their fellow uh, students and are listening to teachers as well. Which only mean now to talk a little bit about this phone ban, but broadly, uh, you know, mobile phone use, especially for young children, is Dr. Jillian Roberts. She's a child psychologist, founder of Mind Key Health, and a professor of educational psychology at the University of Victoria. Dr. Roberts, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Um, you know, I look at this as a parent and I go, oh, you know what, I would agree with it. And perhaps I'm in the wrong. I don't know. I don't know if parents all agree with me or not. But as a child psychologist, as a professional, what are your thoughts on something like this? Well, I'm supportive of this measure. Um, there are some situations where I think children need access to devices. But um, overall, I think it's a good policy to put in place in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is that? What 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 is the concern? Is, is it is it about uh, class time? Is it about concentration? What impacts do you think these cell phones are having on our kids? Well, I think they're a big distraction. You know, I think when um, teachers are taking, you know, precious hours to prepare interesting and dynamic lessons for their classroom, um, to have children not be fully engaged um, with that teacher is, um, is really unfortunate and is losing an opportunity um, to grow and learn. Um, and it's also bad manners. It's, it's not really uh, uh, showing children how to behave appropriately in our digital age. A lot of these um, social media sites are built uh, so that we constantly want to go back to uh, back to them. That FOMO thing, fear of mis- missing out. Uh, they're even set up psychologically with their bright colors to attract us back. Uh, everything is happening in real time. Um, in regards to young kids and social media sites, um, what kind of impact is this having on, on their brains, on them at such a, a young age? Well, from, from a very young age, um, it is, I think, isolating children. I think having them be in the basement in their bedroom on a device, not interacting with their family, not playing in the garden with neighbors, um, 
it's it's isolating them. And uh, a challenge that I have is that um, families out there have very different rules and expectations. So at a certain age, um, children who don't have access to, de- to the devices and families that have allowed access to devices, um, plans to get together on the weekend or to be um, to go to a party or be, be at the movies, those um, plans are being made on social media and the children without access um, are missing out. So it's we're in this period of transition where I think it's important for all of us to get on the same page and have similar expectations so that we can support our children um, to to meet their own potential. Mm-hmm. What is the right age? Is there a right age for, for when a child should have access to a cell phone? Um, for me, it often is, will that child ever be by themselves in a place that might pose danger? So if a child is having to take a city bus to school, if they're walking home um, for a, a, a longer distance to get from school to home, when it's a, when safety becomes a consideration, that's when a cell phone should be considered. Um, if parents are able to drive their children everywhere and the child never goes uh, uh, by themselves somewhere, mm-hmm. I think it can be delayed. You can you can delay it. Um, I think until middle school. Um. The the issue of distraction, are you hearing from parents yourself uh, as a child psychologist in regards to uh, the impact it's having on, on children? As you say, it distracts them, it isolates them. Are you hearing that in your own practice? Absolutely. And I would say there's also bullying that is happening on social media, which is something that many of us didn't grow up with. Like many of us, you know, we would be bullied on the playground, but not... 24-7 on our device in our home, we're looking at it in the middle of the night, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's another avenue for children to be hurt. And so it's important that we teach our children how to use devices properly and with, with good social etiquette. Things like asking permission from someone before posting a photo, um, not liking or sharing something that is embarrassing of a friend, put up without permission of a friend. Like, we need to start talking about what it means to be a good digital citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think we've been so hesitant here in B.C. and Canada to get there? I mean, you see the Netherlands, the French, and English have been looking at it. The, the, the Finns uh, have also are following um, the, the example from the Netherlands. Um, why are we so hesitant? Why are we so slow here in your mind in British Columbia or in Canada to look at something like this? Well, I think during COVID, things slowed down and... People needed devices to be able to access information, socialize with grandparents, download their homework, right? Like COVID was a period of time where the um, electronic communications became incredibly important. And we're coming out of that now, um, and there's an opportunity now for us to think about how we want to shape technology use for the next generation, So I think COVID had something to do with it. I also think that people generally are uncomfortable with um, policies that restrict uh, individual liberties. Um, And so anything that would take away an individual's liberty would be frowned upon. Um, I think that there needs to be a more balanced 
um, approach to, to thinking about what our children need and how we can all do the same thing, all get on the same page, uh, and ensure that we are teaching children to use the devices in a correct way. If we do nothing uh, and leave it as is, um, I mean, I, I don't want to be a pessimist, but I think we, and this is based on absolutely no education or training, just as a layperson, as, as a parent, I think there's going to be an entire generation of kids that we have let down, if not already. But this is just long-term damage it's having on these kids. And I don't think we are... Um, having that conversation as much as we need to be having that conversation. And we certainly on the policy side haven't been acting on it. I just think we are inflicting some long-term damage and I don't even think we know the repercussions in regards to what we're inflicting yet on these kids. And we're not going to find out for a while. There is a a certain sense of urgency in my mind. Maybe I'm wrong. Your thoughts? No, I think there's urgency too. And I think that the element of isolation, like when you're on a phone you're isolated. You're not communicating in real time with the people around you. Your phone is so easy to get information, to access um, um, information that it kind of sucks you into a rabbit hole. Um, And when you're young and growing up and needing to learn skills, get out in the fresh air, learn sporting activities, um, make friendships, like all of those foundational things that children do as they're growing up, those can all be harmed and restricted if a child is completely isolated. Um, And too much screen time, too much access to a device has the consequence of isolating the child. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Roberts, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.